joy in the faith while suffering for the faith. To some, this heart posture seems almost impossible. I mean, if you've ever been through suffering, you know that this heart posture is difficult. Joy in the faith while suffering for the faith. We know that it's difficult because suffering can oftentimes be gut-wrenching, sort of sky-dimming, an experience that knocks the wind out of you for not just a few minutes, but perhaps for days, months, even years, and even decades. But our passage this morning by God's grace reminds us that joy and suffering is possible and this joy and suffering is certainly not found in ourselves so I'm not going to tell you to look inside yourself I'm not going to tell you to reach deep down within you in order to rise above your situation of course those things don't ultimately solve the problem of suffering and sin here we are reminded to look outside of ourselves And our passage tells us that we as Christians can, in fact, have joy in suffering now. Not because we are great, but because our sovereign and gracious God is for our faith. We as Christians can have joy in suffering because our sovereign and gracious God is for our faith. This morning we continue our series through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. I invite you to turn there with me now. It can be found on page 1014 if you're using one of those black bibles there in front of you and uh today we look at verses 6 to 12 of chapter 1 and the christians that peter was writing to were in fact joyful in the faith though they suffered for the faith and even though you might not find yourself suffering persecution on behalf of jesus's name we nevertheless can learn from what's going on here because we too will suffer the effects of sin or on account of sin not only from man but also from within ourselves so we too will suffer various things and we will need one day to have a renewed faith and some of you guys might find yourself in that situation even right now in need of a renewed faith this joy in faith might seem a little bit foreign to you because of what you're suffering well friends here our passage today reminds us that joy in faith or in suffering can certainly be found because our sovereign and gracious God is for us. He's for our faith. Look there in 1 Peter chapter 1. And even though our our, uh, passage that we're going to focus on is in 6 to 12, I'll read 1 through 12, so that way you get a little bit more context. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Well, friends, to strengthen your joy in suffering, this passage reminds you, Christian, that your faith is precious to God. Therefore, he refines it so that you would rest secure in God's grace. We're going to take that and break it up into three points. Number one, your faith is precious to God. Number two, therefore, he refines your faith. And then number three, it's so that, here's the purpose, is so that you would rest secure in God's grace. It was the early 60s AD when Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, wrote this letter to Christians scattered in what is now known today as Turkey. Nero was the emperor, and though Nero's satanic, emperor-wide persecution had not erupted yet, persecution of Christians was still very much present. So this is the early 60s AD, Nero's satanic, ungodly, horrendous persecution against Christians would not erupt until a few years later. So they're on a cusp of some horrendous things about to happen, and here they're seeing this foreshadow even as they suffer. In, one, in chapter 1, verse 6, go ahead and look there. We know that Christians were grieved by various trials. And if you read the rest of the letter, if you do that uh, you know, this afternoon, you'll see there that uh, they were suffering unjustly as they bore the name Christian. It was for their faith. That's why they suffer. But despite their, their suffering, they were still rejoicing in the hope of the gospel. And that's what's referred to there in, in verses 3 to 5. They were, Go ahead and skim that there. They were rejoicing in God. Because God caused them to be born again. You know, like a baby is born into the world. They are, Christians are born into the sphere of new life in Christ. Where there is, in fact, forgiveness of sins. There is, in fact, love for God. There is a restored relationship to their very creator. And in an effort to re- renew and strengthen their faith all the more, Peter reminds them that they have been born to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They're born into this great, marvelous inheritance, and they have a hope of this final salvation that is about to come when their king returns, their very king that they suffer for. All that is referred to in verse 6 when he says, in this, that's the this, that's the salvation in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation uh, to God, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. They're sorrowful. They are distressed here. You know, I'm really thankful that this passage here reflects the reality of grief. Along with the real various trials that we go, go through comes a very real heart-stopping sorrow. An onslaught at times of grief. And what might seem as a crippling distress. That's the reality of this life in this sinful world. 
And so if uh, there might be, some of you guys may know, I don't know, you may know Christians who might portray that the Christian life is all happy, clappy, and everything is good. When in reality, that just that, that denies the reality of living in a sinful world. If you look at some of our forefathers in the faith, some people in the Old Testament, for example, and the New Testament, many of them lived long portions of their life in the minor key. And these trials and the grief that accompanies the trials simply reflects, once again, the fact that we live in a sinful world. So if you're visiting with us today and know yourself not to be a Christian, the Bible explains that suffering was a result of sin. There was a time when sin was not If you can imagine that, there would be nothing to report on in the news of suffering, only good. There was a time when sin was not in the beginning. God made us to be in a perfect relationship with him, a relationship of love, of trust, where there was no sin. But bad things came into the world when Adam and Eve, God's first people, protested against God, the only king. Even though God had given them his very own self, they shrugged him off. God draws near to them. And uh, Adam and Eve say, buzz off, God. I don't really need you. Even though God had given his perfect laws, which they were to, to delight in, a safe place of living, they judged these laws to be shackles on their feet and on their hands. And so they made up their own laws. They became gods unto themselves. They flexed whatever autonomy they had towards sin. And because of this sin of treason, they earned for themselves God's judgment, the Bible says. From this rebellion, the chaos and sin and death enter into the world. Where we now, everybody, the Bible says, is born into sin and everybody actually chooses to sin. Rebellion against God is sin. Persecuting God's people is sin hating killing stealing adultery racism sexual abuse we could be we could go on is all sin suffering is a result of sin this is all part of the reality of living in a sinful world this is what happens when the world rejects the good and perfect creator over us over you the wonderful thing though friends is that god set about to extend pardon to those who had rebelled against him, delaying judgment. And in the land darkened by sin and suffering, because of sin, God chose to bring the light of salvation into the world. Being a loving God, he set about restoring the very things that man had ruined, restoring relationship, forgiving sin, restoring man's trust, their belief, their faith, their submission to the only one who rules justly rightly lovingly these christians that peter was writing to they were rejoicing in what god had done for them all the restoration that god had taken that god had was working for them the faith that he was giving them and because they were still suffering the effects of man's sin god wanted them to know that their faith was precious this brings us to point number one god finds faith precious And naturally, when we hear that, we should think, of course he would. God caused them, after all, to be born again to a living hope, to belief and trust in a resurrected Jesus Christ. It was through this faith that God was guarding them for the return of Jesus Christ. And it was this faith that God had called them to stand firm in. 
Paul the Apostle says this faith is what God himself had given the Christians. God had given the Christians faith. In this letter, God here, through Peter, is faithfully, intently, gently tending to that which he himself planted. Thus, genuine faith, Peter here lets them know there in verse 7, you look there, is more precious than gold. Here God is, through Peter, tending to the faith that he himself planted, and he's saying, that faith that you have is more precious than gold. You see the comparisons, the comparison of value seems pretty obvious there. Man values gold, they seek to obtain gold, and even live and die by the pursuit of gold. But God and God's people value faith. Faith in God is the commodity cherished and cultivated in the kingdom of God. And here I'm not talking about faith that is a mere assent or belief in Christ. As in, you know, you might know people like this who say, yeah, you know, he, I think he lived. I think he really died. I think there was a Jesus. Right? That's not the belief and the trust and the faith that Peter's talking about here. Satan and his minions have that kind of belief, but yet they rage against God. Peter will go on to say that Satan, even though he has right doctrine, seeks Christians to devour he wants to kill God's people, devour them like a lion. Now, faith in Christ certainly includes assenting, uh, but includes so much more. It is, once again, a believing, right? It is a, it is a trusting that will lead one to acknowledge and love the lordship of the true king. They acknowledge and they love it. And, and everything that that comes with, so they love his righteousness, they love his holiness, they love his justice, they love his love, they love his mercy. It is a faith, a believing in, a trusting in a king that results in a cherishing of who the king is and his laws for us. That's the faith that he's talking about here. That is the, the genuine faith. It presumes a bond of reciprocal love. Not only does God love us, but his people, his citizens love the king. And as God is busy building his kingdom and restoring things to the way they once were, as he's busy undoing the effects of sin, naturally he finds precious the trust and faith that he himself plants. I mean, you see this in, let's say, the book of Genesis, take the character of Abraham. Uh, when Abraham did not believe, when his faith was wilting and wavering, what did God do? Did he just, you know, like a careless uh, gardener sort of not tend to that which he planted? No, he actually tends to the very things he planted. He, he draws near to Abraham. He reaffirms God, his own great love for him. And, and through signs of taking him to look at the stars that reaffirm his promises, you know, he promises that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And then he takes him out and he says, I'll give you a sign. Look at all that. Look at the sand. Your descendants are going to be as many as that. And he says, look, you want to know that your people will be a nation. He continues to give them other signs. So when Abraham's life was, his faith, his belief, his trust was wilting in a physical sense. You know, there's famine going on. He responds to that negatively. And then even in a spiritual sense, God draws near to him and gives him more faith. So he's tending. He's nourishing here. He's nourishing belief. So that Abraham depends and has and, and rests solidly on the rock 
that is God and his promises. Abraham's bond of trust is strengthened in the God of the promises. You take Moses, for example. Uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus. We already finished that a, a couple weeks ago. But you see there, when God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses throws up excuses. God is sovereign, but Moses throws up excuses. Oh, you know, I'm not eloquent. I can't really do this. It's not really my thing. Uh, but, but in all of his excuses, in all of his turnings, in all of his doubting, God tends to him, right? By teaching him again and again and again. The fact that he is, in fact, sovereign. God is growing his faith in a sovereign God. We could go on. We, go, we could look at uh, Joseph. We could look at all sorts of biblical characters. But, Christian, do you find yourself in suffering? Thinking that God has abandoned you to tend to yourself? Perhaps you judge your present struggle to be too overwhelming, too difficult, and your rejoicing now has turned into complaining and protesting, whether loudly or silently. Friends, remember, Christ, who gives faith, tends to that faith so that it would bear the fruit of faithfulness. Your faith is precious to God. And we only need look to Jesus, right? Whom the Father tended to all of his entire life and in his greatest time of need is right there with him. Jesus, knowing the faithfulness of God's power, he trusted in God. And though he experienced suffering, God the Father delivered him. All of his power was thrown towards Christ to protect him ultimately by raising him from the dead. Even though his faith, even though faith in general is precious, it does not excuse us from suffering. I mean, our very own Lord had to suffer. And so we naturally are expected to walk in his very same path. But our faith, nevertheless, to God is precious. It brings comfort, right? This truth. It should bring comfort to the fact that God tends to the very things that he has planted in you. And this brings us to the second point. He tends to it even in the midst of suffering, even through suffering. Because God is for our faith, he therefore refines our faith. Because God finds our faith precious, he therefore refines it. This refining here is described in our passage and actually in a number of places in the Bible. In verse 6 there, it says this, that as, uh, this is described as testing. He refines it by testing. Verse 6, it is the tested genuineness of your faith. You see what God is after there through the testing? He tests in order that your faith would be shown to be genuine. That your trust would be shown to be genuine. Your belief would be shown to be genuine. And so he seeks to refine your faith. This, this testing is consistently described as the refining of a precious metal like gold. That might not be so pure. It's submitted to the flames of the fire so that the impurities are burned off. And then what you're left with is even more pure. It is even more uncontaminated and untainted. It is true. It is genuine. In our passage, it says that God uses the fire of trials to bring about a genuine faith so that your hope and trust would be in God. We can think of Job in the Old Testament, right? He suffered greatly. He lost everything he had, his material possessions, his family, even his health. He was in the fire of affliction, but he's able to say in Job 13, 15, though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. Though you, God, slay me, 
I will still trust in you. I mean, isn't that so encouraging that that book is in there for us to learn from? Here in Job, God proves to everybody who has ever read Job or heard of Job or who will ever come to read of Job that God is worth glorying in no matter the circumstance. If you read Job, it's amazing. I mean, Satan, he is roaming around looking for someone to devour and he actually goes to God. And God, God knows exactly what Satan is doing. And he says, look, okay, if you want somebody, take the righteous man, Job. And then so Satan, therefore, sets about trying to drag him down. And then he suffers. And what happens after he loses his family, his earthly possessions, his health? But yet, by God's grace, he retains faith. God there it gives him twice as much as he had in the beginning. I mean, you realize right, why, right, why that is there? That is there so that we would know, now coming many hundreds of years, some people think that, that Job was written around the 1500s, so, you know, two millennia, more than that, uh, it's to remind us that God is worth glorying in no matter the circumstances. And indeed, he is refining our faith. Though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. He was a righteous man who suffered and who struggled, but who at the end of the day believed and trusted in God, and God bestowed honor and glory on his head. Now for us today, if you are suffering, and you really want a renewed faith, you really want to know how you can have joy in the midst of struggles, uh, you know, God does not promise us that we will receive a hundredfold or even double in this earthly life. He might give that to Job, but he doesn't promise that for us. What he does promise is that he will give us a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold in heaven at the right time. Not necessarily here on earth, but at the right time. He promises even the glory of Jesus Christ. You look there in verses six and seven. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This here is the ultimate goal. We would receive praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The immediate goal is to see whether or not our faith is genuine. He helps us see that. The ultimate goal is the bestowal of glory from Christ himself. This can be a little bit confusing. Uh, but uh, let me just read you some verses here. First Corinthians 5, 4, it speaks of this day when Christ will return and he will grant us a reward or glory or honor or, or some sort of praise. First uh, Corinthians five four says that he will, Christ will expose every man's work for what it is, and those who persevere will receive their commendation. Romans two seven says that he will grant us eternal life to those who seek honor. Uh, this here, this glory, this honor, this praise, the stuff that Romans two First Corinthians five is talking about, is the end times glory of final salvation in the kingdom of God. The way I think we kind of understand this uh, in a practical daily experience is, you know, imagine your favorite sports team. Um, and let's say they haven't won anything in 108 years. 
Um, and then all of a sudden, your team wins. They receive glory and honor and power in their victory. I mean, don't you, right, when the television is on and you know that they've won, the ninth inning is over, don't you, like, hold your head a little bit higher? You puff out your chest a little bit more like, my team won. That's what's going on here. The glory and the honor and the praise is really Jesus's into eternity. But according to God's kindness, Christ's kindness, the king shares his glory with his citizens. Just like a sports team wants their city to enjoy the glory and honor and praise that they just received for winning whatever title that they just won. Or you can imagine it this way. A king who is going away for something else, he tells his citizens, his army, his people to defend the city. And the victor comes and they know, the city knows, the people know that he is the true victor. They have fought valiantly. The king has gone off to win the crucial battle while they, while they defend the lesser battle. And when the king returns, the battle has won. The citizens erupt in praise. The praise of the king that is shared amongst his citizens. That's what's going on here. They are tested in their faith. Tested genuineness of your faith. Ultimate goal that they it may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor when the king returns at the revelation of jesus christ there is suffering now it's clear but there will in fact be glory then god is for our faith god intends that you christian would receive end times glory his glory when he returns your faith is in fact being refined now but so that it would work to produce these things, genuineness, that you would receive glory. Again, we see that God is for our faith. He finds it precious and therefore he refines it. So we got to ask ourselves, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of trials, in the midst of distress, if God thinks your faith is precious, so precious that he wants to refine it and make it more pure, and you are unhappy with that, you have to ask yourselves, you know, are the things that I count precious in this world, in this life, the same things that God counts precious in my life and in his kingdom? Remember that God is after a tested, genuine faith that is wholehearted, a never turning back trust, a bond of unbreakable love and conviction about who he is and what he has done. So that so much so that compromising holiness Going against his goodness is never a good option, and you're convicted about that. And we have to remember that he is busy bringing about the very thing that he is testing. He's making us fit for his kingdom, where we share in his very honor, praise, and glory. So friends, do you love God's means to bring about his appointed end? The means that is suffering to bring about his appointed end that is genuine faith, praise and glory at the end times. Do you then love how God is so meticulous, like the perfect gardener he is, not like Adam, who didn't know what to do with the fruit, but God, who knows what to do with the fruit, is meticulously tending to the very things that he planted. Or... 
Do you really grouchily mind that God rearranges all the things in your life that you count precious? You know, you can imagine God is consistently taking off the things that you have put on the mantle of your heart and put Jesus. And you say, what are you doing? Don't do that. Just leave it alone. Suffering is hard. When we come to realize that things other than Christ are on the mantle of our hearts, it is hard and it is ugly. I have my desires, my desired happy life. I have my desired family, how, you know, marriage, how many children do you want? You have your desired career and your, repu- your, your reputation. You have your desired pleasure. For these Christians, we imagine that their desired life was living. Friends, if Christ returned to save you from end times judgment, will he have to convince you that what he has prepared for you in his eternal kingdom is better than what you have in this sinful, fleeting life? How much cajoling will he have to do to you, convincing? How much conversation would he have to have with you? I mean, just imagine the picture. Christ returns. I mean, imagine the conversation as we cling to the very things that he wants us to let go of so that we might cling to him. If we cling to our three-bedroom house in Hacienda Heights, and behind Jesus Christ stands the heavens, the place that he has prepared for you. I mean, imagine how silly that is as we're clutching to it. And behind our Savior is everything that he has prepared for us. Or, or, or maybe you cling to your wealth, you cling to your bank statements. And behind Christ as his return, behind this conversation are the eternal riches in himself. You might cling to your very own health or your body. And there in Christ, right in front of you, is him who possesses the new body. The new body that you too will share in the resurrected life. You might cling to your reputation. When in him who stands before you, you already bear the greatest name above all names. You might even be clinging to sin. And there stands the resurrected Christ, who is a symbol of freedom from sin. I mean, how much cajoling will he have to do to you, convincing you that what he has prepared for you is better than anything you have here on earth? What is it, friends, that you cling to? Because it is that that God calls you to lay at his feet for his purposes. You can think of sin. He calls you to lay down your sin before his feet so that he might destroy it. Or you can think of all his good gifts that he maybe doesn't want to destroy, but he wants to teach you to love it for his sake, love it with his intentions, love it for his glory, just in the right priority. Remember, friends, he is about refining your faith so that you would trust him more and love him more and find him to be the only sufficient and strong savior, strong enough to bear all of your hopes. So, friends, what is it that you cling to? Because that may be what takes you all the way down to the bottom. See, friends, as Christ refines your faith, even in the midst of trials, he's teaching you to let go of the things that you may think save you. And cling to him who is the only savior. That's the beauty here of what he's doing. This this refining is so that your faith would be in him. You would lay hold of him. 
the English preacher Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way in relation to trials and trusting in Jesus. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Friends, if you don't love the rock of ages, you will hate the waves. You will think these waves are curses. And if so, you will abandon your rock of ages and your faith will be shown to be nothing. This is what the Christians were uh, not doing. Instead, Peter commends them in their suffering. You look there in verse 8. Look at what he commends them for. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And then here's the climax. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. They are the ones suffering, yet their hope is unmoved. Peter even encourages them, knowing that they have not seen Christ. Like Peter himself has seen Christ. He encourages these believers, even though you have not seen him, even though you do not now see him, you love him, you believe in him, and you rejoice in him. Why do they rejoice with glory in the midst of suffering? It's because in Christ they're receiving from God what God himself intended. God plants, he tends to, and then he delivers on this faith. The salvation of their souls, their whole body, everything. They are entirely saved. That's what he means there. Salvation of their souls. And so, friends, you notice that we return to what we come, what we started with. In this you rejoice, there in verse 6, and even in suffering you love Christ, you believe in Christ, you rejoice in Christ. So the big idea, right, God is for their faith. God is for your faith, Christian, even in the midst of suffering. Faith is precious to God, first. Second, therefore he refines it, he cultivates it. And thirdly, so that we might lay hold of his grace. Third point, so that you, friend, might lay hold of his grace. This is communicated in the fact that they are receiving the outcome of their faith. But the fact that God refines their faith is we sort of get a little double click. Peter double clicks on what this looks like in verses 10 to 12. Go ahead and look there. He says concerning this salvation. He just mentioned salvation in verse 9. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look these verses and in fact verses 1 to 12 concern encouragement for the now as we look to what Christ will do in the future, but also rooted in what he has done in the past. So we have the now, it's like you live, you love him, you believe in him, you rejoice with him, you're obtaining what is to come, future salvation. And then he, he forces us to look back, to encourage us in the faith, to strengthen our faith, to get us to rejoice. Friends, do you realize that this involves us? The, the folks that he's writing to, they are the church that have, in fact, come after the first coming of Christ, but who looked forward to the second coming of Christ. That's us, too. We live in the church age. 
So we understand what Peter is talking about right here. We live in the now. We look forward to what is coming. And by God's grace, our faith is bolstered in what he has done in the past. So friends, as I go through this, this is meant for you too. All these verses here are to remind them of what God has done for their faith. He is for their faith. How? First, he says that God had set aside grace for them from long ago. They live in grace. They hope for the grace to come. But he says, look, this grace that you stand in, that you hope for, is grace set aside for you long ago. Hundreds of years ago. Over a millennia ago. Uh, All the way back in the Old Testament times, he says there, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Can you imagine the new Christian who might have just stepped into Christianity, just placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and he says there, like, okay, I get that grace is mine now. I really look forward to grace that is to come in the future. But that grace that he has set aside from how long ago? Already, they're supposed to be encouraged here about all that God is doing from eternity past into eternity future. The grace of salvation is not something that they stumbled upon. It's not something that you Christians stumbled upon. It's not something that you initiated the seeking after. It was something that God had designated for them and for you from long ago. Not only did God set aside grace for them, but he had the Old Testament prophets pave the way for this grace. There's the second thing here. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophets who prophesied about the grace of over a millennia ago, uh, they prophesied about these things. I mean, what an encouragement. God's grace for me. And then in the Old Testament that we have right here in front of us speaks about God's grace for me. And, And you look there in the passage, right? It really was not for the Old Testament times. At least not all of it was because it says there that they were not serving themselves but you. And you, you, you look at the examples here of all the Old Testament passages that Peter is quoting here. I mean, you flip over to, let's say, uh, chapter 2, for example, verse 6. Here he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, that the Jews rejected, that then the Gentiles, that is us, if you are not a Jew, comes to embrace and comes to be built upon, that is the church. Right? That's straight out of the book of Psalms. The stone, the stone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, Psalm 118, Old Testament text. You look over there, uh, look at uh, 22 of of chapter 2. He, that is Jesus Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You know where that comes from? Straight out of Isaiah. For you, Christian. While he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which is a mention and echo of Deuteronomy, where Moses himself, through the Spirit of God, is preaching. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, straight out of Isaiah 53. For you. For you were straying like lost sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here he's drawing from all of these Old Testament passages the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours is for you. What an encouragement to the Christians. Remember, they're, persecute, they're persecuted. Uh, what an encouragement to the Christians who, who might have still had the voice of condemnation of the local authorities, their persecutors, their neighbors, their masters still ringing in their ears. 
Peter says, hey, I have a word for you too. A lasting and abiding word. The word of God. Not one of condemnation, but a message of grace for you and grace to you. All the way back from the time of the prophets. And in fact, from scripture. All the way back into eternity past. He doesn't stop there. The third thing, right? This grace reserved from, for them that the Old Testament's prophesied of. The New Testament preachers revealed the prophecies. You have the fulfillment for the New Testament church. Not only for them, but also for you, friends. For Peter's readers, God's unfolding plan of salvation was unraveling right before their eyes. You look there at verse 12 of chapter 1. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. You see there that they are hearing the preaching of the gospel and that is described as the things that have now been preached to you. The things that have now been announced to you. You hear that you language? So there is to be no disassociation from the prophets of old, speaking of who would inherit the promises of God and the church of Jesus Christ. He says, this, these things have been fulfilled to you, Christians. Announced to you, sent for you. See, all the promises of old are coming to fruition in their faith. Now, friends, application time. Uh, if you have no interest in the Old Testament... And you say, ah, you know, that stuff is just about the irrelevant stories of God's Old Testament people. God begs to differ. More specifically, Jesus Christ himself, your Lord, your Savior, begs to differ. Did you notice who it was that gave the Old Testament prophets their prophecies? It says there that the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating the stuff about his own sufferings, that is death, and then the subsequent glories, that is his resurrection. So that we would look for Christ and believe on him. The prophecies, friends, in the Old Testament are for you, Christian. And so to neglect the Old Testament is to neglect the fullness of Christ's words for you. It is to neglect the encouragement that God wants to give you, the stability, the robust faith, the all-in faith that he wants you to have. The word of God, friends, is for you. Now, I know publishers, right, Christian publishers, will tell it is for you based on their marketing. The teen Bible, the seniors Bible, the Bible for kids who like camouflage, the Bible for kids who like princesses. But, friends, God says it is for you because it concerns your king. Because it concerns the forgiveness that the king gives to you. Because it concerns the grace that was to be yours. For those who lay hold of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian. Friends, the whole entire scripture speaks of this grace that is offered to sinners in Jesus Christ. You could choose to go, go ahead and live a life of suffering with really no hope or no explanation, let's say, for evil or even the bad things that you find going on in your very own heart. Or, friends, we could go to the answer that God gives us. We have sinned, rebelled against God, earned for ourselves God's condemnation, His punishment, even in hell, the Bible says. But the wonderful thing is God sets about the mission 
to extend pardon to every rebel that lays down his arms and repents of their sins and believes. And so if you do that, you know God's grace for you. No matter how bad of a sinner you may think you are, there are even worse here in Scripture. And so he grants every person who repents of their sins forgiveness, this grace from eternity past into eternity future, this deliverance through Jesus Christ who bore your sin on the cross, the wrath that you deserve for everybody who repents of their sins and believes. Three days later, which is what Peter talks about, he gets up from the grave proving it to everybody that payment, that is death, your death, has been paid for and God therefore is pleased. And so it says, friends, that he's going to return. And he will come either to gather his kingdom people or to judge those who stand against him. But friends, that grace can be yours if, in fact, you turn from your sin and you believe. If you want to know more about this gospel of Jesus Christ that Peter believes in, that these Christians believe in, that this church holds to and believes in, feel free and talk to me or the friend who brought you. I would be more than happy to talk about this grace that can be yours for those who repent and believe. For Peter's, for the, the Christians that Peter was writing to here, they are to be our examples. They live in the now. They love Christ. They believe in Christ. They are rejoicing in Christ. Hoping in what God will do in the future. Confident in their faith. A joyful faith because what God had done for them in the past. Eternity past. What is it that makes joy suffer? What is it that makes joy and suffering possible? It is knowing that God is for your faith. He finds faith precious, and so therefore He refines it in order that we might lay hold of His grace. Just as He plants faith, so He tends to it, so He harvests it, and so He blesses it. And so, in God's hands, Christians are, in fact, to rejoice and can rejoice, though we may suffer because of what man will do or what man does because of our own hearts, our own sinfulness, we can nevertheless rejoice knowing what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in Jesus Christ. According to God's foreknowledge, he elects his people. By the Holy Spirit, he sets us apart for holy use. There in verse 2. According to the Spirit of Christ, he sends prophets with prophecies to gather us in through the good news of Jesus Christ. According to his great love, he sends Jesus Christ to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, and to die on the cross, to die the death that we should have. According to his great mercy, he has caused us, therefore, to be born again through the living and abiding word of God. As Christ was raised from the dead, so we too are raised from the dead. According to his great power, he guards us for a final salvation. According to his wisdom and his knowledge and his care, he renews and refines our faith. According to his goodness... He rewards the faith that he cultivates. And according to his faithfulness, Christ will come again to deliver. God is who is what makes joy possible in suffering. Because he who has planned your salvation, friend, has accomplished it and will deliver final salvation. God, friends, is for your faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd, and therefore we shall not want, as the psalm says. We know, Lord, that you are all-knowing, that you are all-wise, 
that you are all powerful. You are all caring, always loving, always tender, and always precise. And so, Lord, with you as our great shepherd, Lord, we pray that you would help us submit to your will. We pray, Lord, that you would trust us as you lead us to streams of waters, to the green pastures, and even sometimes in the valleys of death that this sinful world so clearly has for us. Father, we pray that you would help us cast our cares at your feet, knowing that you care for us, knowing that you are shepherding us. May we not take our own salvation into our own hands, because if we did, Lord, we would be limited to our own limited knowledge, our own pathetic wisdom at times, our inability, our lack of love. Lord, we thank you that you are our Savior. Jesus Christ, we thank you that in your great love for us, you laid down your life, proving to us showing us, revealing to us that you, in fact, are the shepherd who cares for us. So, Lord, we pray that we would be ever mindful of the fact that you are tending to our faith, even in the midst of trial. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us rejoice. In your name we pray. Amen.